The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Christ. So I, I remember the moment I knew that Adam would be a perfect fit as executive pastor here at Redeemer. I don't think I've ever shared this. So he and I were eating lunch together. We were sitting outside sort of on a, on a patio or deck there of a restaurant in Cary. And I was explaining to him what we were looking for, what we envisioned for this position. At that time, he'd been serving as the lead pastor of a church he planted for about nine years. And I asked him if he'd ever considered a different role, a role that focused more on developing and training leaders and less on the weekly preaching and teaching and he told me he had thought about it before, and he'd wondered if maybe that was a better fit for his gifts. And then he said something, and this was the moment. This is when I knew. He said, you know, Josh, sometimes when I'm supposed to be writing my sermon, I get distracted, and I start working on a training handbook for one of our ministries. And I said, that is something I have never done. <laughs> I mean, I think handbooks can be helpful. I have never voluntarily chosen to write one. In fact, if I'm supposed to be working on one, I've often ignored it and worked on a sermon weeks in the future. So I knew Adam would be a perfect fit, not only because he knew the value of a handbook, but he enjoyed the process of creating one, as wonderfully strange as that is. He enjoys the challenge of thinking through how something should work, right? What the best way to do it and the process of all that makes it happen. Because a good handbook defines goals that clarifies expectations. It both informs and empowers people to serve more effectively. Well, in this letter to the church in Corinth, the one we've been studying, the Apostle Paul, he's been defining goals and and clarifying the expectations of faithful ministry. And the reason he's doing it is to inform and empower us to effectively serve God and other people. And, and this is what we've been focused on, is that all of it revolves around the cross of Jesus, that this is what shapes and defines everything we do. The short section of verses we're going to study this morning would almost serve as a as sort of a condensed handbook for cross-shaped ministry. So as a church, the ministry we do should not be shaped by our thoughts, our backgrounds, our experiences. Our ministry is shaped by the cross. The cross is the North Star that guides the decisions we make. Now this handbook becomes especially important when ministry and life gets difficult, when we face criticism, even when we're given well-meaning advice. Like, should, should we do something different? If we did this, would it be more effective? Is there a better way to do this, a way that would be more fruitful or easier? 
So when challenges in ministry come, we need to understand why we do and why we minister the way we minister. And this series of verses, this paragraph, helps us understand how the cross shapes that. Now, you might hear that and think, well, this sounds like a sermon for pastors, right? The paid ministers. But as a pastor, here's how my job is spelled out in the New Testament. It says in Ephesians 4 that Jesus gave some to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Every Christian is a minister of the gospel. Every Christian is a minister in all of their life. You are called, if you're a Christian, to be a minister in your home and in your neighborhood and at work and in church. You, Christian, are called to minister the gospel. This is not a work of pastors. Pastors equip saints, that's all Christians, to do the work of ministry. And so it's important that you understand exactly what it means to minister in a way that looks and is shaped by the cross. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm thankful you're here with us this morning. I hope you've already heard and understood more of the gospel of Jesus because of your time with us. But this passage on cross-shaped ministry actually still applies to you because it explains why you don't see the cross the same way as a Christian does. In fact, it says you're blind to what God has done and is doing, but there's hope for your blindness. So I encourage you to listen well. There's great hope for you in these verses. We can divide these six verses into three sections. Here's the first section. We call it the commitments of cross-shaped ministry. The commitments of cross-shaped ministry. The first commitment spelled out in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Here's commitment number one. We commit to keep going for the sake of others. We commit to keep going for the sake of others. So the Apostle Paul, he is a human messenger inspired by the Spirit so that these words come as God's word to God's people. He has suffered so much and he's faced so much criticism and he says here, we do not give up. We don't lose heart. We don't grow so discouraged that we hang our aprons up no matter how hard ministry gets, no matter how useless it feels, no matter how much resistance we face, the cross teaches us not to give up. Jesus didn't give up on us, and so we don't give up on others. We're told this in Hebrews 1. It says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. How? Well, we keep our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter and pioneer of our faith. For the joy that was laid before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame, and now he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we're tempted to quit, and if you really do minister to people, you will be tempted to quit. This this letter has shown us how hard ministering to people is. I mean, it began in chapter 1 with the affliction we face as those who are trying to follow Jesus in a world that does not love him. In fact, a world that stands opposed to him. So if you minister, you will be tempted to quit. And when you're tempted to quit, we think about the mercy we received when Jesus went to the cross in our place and then we recommit ourselves to a ministry of mercy to those in need. Well, they don't deserve it. Neither did we. Well, they refuse to listen. So do we. You see, the only reason you and I have experienced God's saving work is because Jesus determined to show us mercy in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our resistance. If we give up when it gets hard, we're failing to show others the mercy we ourselves received through the cross. 
You see, the saving work of the cross brings with it a calling on our lives to spread the gospel to others. In fact, in the next chapter, the Apostle Paul will make this connection explicit. Listen to what he says in chapter 5. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Because of the mercy we experienced when Jesus went into the gutter to drag us out kicking and screaming, our lives no longer belong to us. And so we can't stand neat and tidy on the sidewalk and say about others, well, they're just too messy. I don't want to get dirty. Well, maybe if they show a little interest, I'll try again. No, we follow Jesus down into the gutter and we keep ministering to those in need because we remember the overpowering stench of our sin. We can still remember the suffocating darkness of life apart from God's forgiveness. You see, if your ministry to others is shaped by anything other than the cross of Jesus, if it's motivated by guilt, or by a desire to build a name for yourself, or a need for approval, then you will give up at some point because it will grow too difficult. But if your ministry is shaped by the cross, you commit yourself to keep going no matter how hard it gets. Mercy motivates us to take one more step. See, if we were not too far gone for Christ's mercy, then no one else is either. I want you to be a, sort of be honest with yourself for a moment. Is there a person that you have ministered to in the past, that you have served, that you have tried to help, but you've either quit or you're tempted to quit? I mean, Josh, you don't understand what they've done. I mean, you don't know how hard it's been. You don't know how many times I've tried to help and they've taken advantage of me. You don't know what it feels like to be rejected by them over and over. It's hopeless. I don't have anything left. I've got nothing more to give. Let the truth of the cross be an arm around your shoulder and an encouraging whisper in your ear. Let the mercy of the cross recharge the deficit you feel and empower you to keep going when you want to quit. So because of the cross, we commit to keep going for the sake of others. Here's our second commitment. We commit to honest sincerity instead of manipulation or distortion. Jesus died on the cross in public. It wasn't done in secret. It was an open display of God's judgment on sin and his mercy to sinners. Nothing concealed or hidden, no bribe or backroom deal, all wide open for everyone to witness. And that's the way we minister to others. We don't hide things. We don't use manipulation. We aren't deceitful or dishonest. Like the cross itself, we put the truth out in the open for everyone to witness. Look at verse 2. It says, We have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting, distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. Brothers and sisters, we have no secret motives. The cross is not built on lies and deception, so we need to make sure everything that we do, everything that we say as a church is honest and straightforward. Here's the key to ministry. You ready? Here's the key. We have the truth. We have the truth. We don't have anything to hide. So the gospel doesn't need a PR team to massage its message. It's true. And so our ministry is based upon knowing the truth and then sharing that truth openly. 
This is why the single largest item on our weekly meeting together is the sermon. It's the time where we open the word of God to hear what God says. We want to know the truth so we can go and share the truth with others. And listen, we welcome everyone to come and listen to the truth with us. Like we don't have a public meeting where we say one thing and then a secret meeting where we go and we say, here's the real agenda. Everything is open because we have the truth. In fact, we, we're willing to give a copy of the truth for free to anyone who would say, I'll read it. So what this means for you practically as you minister is that you need to know the truth. You need to so acquaint yourself with God's word that you can share it openly and confidently with others. Whatever else you are committed to knowing, commit yourself to knowing the word of God. I mean, we commit ourselves to knowing lots of things, don't we? There are things that grab our attention, that we love to give our attention to. I want to know that. I want to be good at that. I want to get better at that. We need to commit ourselves to knowing the Word of God. So this is why we show up every week. We go to our community groups, and we mean smaller groups to disciple, smaller discipleship groups. This is what it looks like to be committed to the truth. Let me encourage you, be here. Ask for book recommendations from mature Christians. Be a sponge that soaks up the Word of God so that when you're put in the ringer, it's the truth of the Bible that comes out. I want you to think about the benefit we have as ministers of the cross. It's this. God never asks us to lie for him. I'm quite confident all of us have lied at some point. And the thing was, when you lie, right, you start to feel shame. But, but worse than that, you, you feel like you're going to be exposed. And so often you lie, and then when confronted or when something comes up, what happens? You have to lie again. And each new lie makes the fear of exposure that much worse. And so you keep lying and you're, you're spinning. What, am I, what are they going to say? What are they going to ask? That? What are they, they going to find? Right? It's this fear of ex- being exposed. Here's the thing. We don't, we don't have that as ministers because we have the truth. We never have to keep our story straight. Now, now that doesn't mean we know everything. But sometimes I think when we share the truth, we get nervous. What if they say something or ask me a question I don't know? It's the truth. It's okay if you don't know everything. Like, don't go into a conversation. Don't go into serving someone fearful of what they may ask. You're telling them the truth. You're telling them the truth. You don't practice sleight of hand. Like, we don't get nervous that our card trick may not work. Do you realize that God never asked his people to be cunning? We are ministers, not magicians. We have no tricks or gimmicks. In fact, as a church, we steadfastly refuse to do anything that even feels a little gimmicky because we want to make it clear that we stand on the unchanging, unvarnished truth of the word of God. So our commitments are shaped by the cross. We commit to going, to keep going for the sake of others. We commit to honest sincerity. Here's the second section of this handbook. It's found in verses 3 and 4. It's the challenge of cross-shaped ministry. Look at verse 3. But if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The battle for the souls of men and women is not merely intellectual. It's a deeply spiritual battle that includes both mind and will. And it's difficult because we face a real enemy who proactively blinds the eyes of those who don't believe so that they won't see and recognize the truth of the gospel. And this is one of the reasons, listen, manipulation doesn't work as a ministry strategy anyway. Like, you can never manipulate a blind person into seeing. Like, you may be able to convince a blind person to agree with you, but that doesn't mean their eyes now work. Do you realize that every non-Christian that you and I encounter is blind to the glory and beauty of Jesus? Though they long to see his glory, they do not realize this, they long to see his glory, they were made to see his glory, their sin and the work of Satan blinds them. And this is why people create idols. These are gods they can see. These idols then become what they love and live for. It's their futile way to find immortality and meaning in life. It's their pathway to something they think will be glorious. But the glory they long for cannot be contained in a created object, and so the idol always fails to satisfy. Like drinking salt water, the more they indulge, the more desperate they become. And this is a satanic strategy, first employed in the Garden of Eden, continuing ever since, that he brings clouds of confusion in order to block the rays of the sun. But the sun doesn't cease to exist simply because the clouds hide it. The glory of God in Jesus Christ is still there, even though non-Christians cannot see it. So H.G. Wells, in 1904, published a story. It's called The Country of the Blind. And in this story, there's an explorer named Nunez who, who discovers this valley that's been cut off from outsiders for generations. Everyone in this community there in the valley is blind. They've been blind since birth. And they've adapted to their blindness to such a degree that they laugh at Nunez. They mock him because he tries to describe sight to them. It makes no sense. So Nunez eventually stops trying to convince them. He falls in love with a villager's daughter because every good story, someone's got to fall in love with someone, right? He asks permission to marry her. And when he does, the village elders refuse. And the reason they give is because he is mentally unstable. And so the village doctor proposes a remedy. He proposes that they remove Nunez's eyes since they're clearly diseased and they cause him to imagine things which cannot be true. There's a big difference between going blind and being born blind. This is what we're told. Our community is filled with men and women who were born blind, which means not only can they not see the glory of Jesus. They don't realize they're blind. They they have no understanding or perception that there is something beyond what they can perceive. So how do you convince someone who's born blind what it means to see? Well, you tell them honestly. That's what this passage is telling us. But you need to understand there's a strong possibility that they'll think you're crazy. 
That when you talk about sin and judgment and you talk about grace and forgiveness and mercy and freedom and the beauty of the cross as we sang, the wonder of the death of Jesus in their place, that they're going to look at you with either sympathy, like, oh, he's a little crazy, or they're going to look at you with suspicion, he's dangerous. Watch out. And so what are we to do? If we are ministering to a world filled with blind people who don't understand they're blind, Well, we can't simply rely on arguments and logic because the issue is not primarily their intellect. They're smart people. We can't resort to intimidation or coercion because the issue is not primarily their will. They're blind. So what can we do? Well, we can pray and we can share the truth. And those are the means by which God opens the eyes of the blind. And this leads us to the third and final section, which is the content of cross-shaped ministry. So here we are, right? We are resolved to share the truth. We won't quit speaking honestly and sincerely, even though we understand our audience is made up of blind people who don't perceive their own blindness because of the work of Satan and the effects of their own sin. So what can we do? What can we say? Well, that's what we discover in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We are messengers delivering a message. We are newscasters announcing the unvarnished truth. And this truth has two parts. The first part is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the whole gospel in one phrase, In this, we see the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and consummation of Jesus. We see the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth is a real person who was born to a real mother in a real place at a certain point in history. God took on flesh and came to dwell among us. He took on humanity so that he could die in the place of sinners. We see the crucifixion. This same Jesus lived a perfect life, but was sentenced to death by crucifixion by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. He was whipped and beaten, then stripped and nailed to a cross where he hung for hours until finally breathing his last breath and dying. To make certain he was dead, a Roman soldier took a spear and stabbed him in the side. And when his lifeless body was taken down from the cross, there was no question that he was dead. We see the resurrection. His dead body was placed in a tomb and the entrance was sealed by a large stone and guarded by soldiers. On the Sunday morning after his death, some of his disciples came to the tomb and found it empty. The stone was rolled away and an angelic messenger told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. And over the next 40 days, he appeared in person to 500 of his followers. We see his ascension. After 40 days, he gave his disciples a final command to take the message of his death and resurrection to the ends of the earth. Then before their eyes, he ascended into the clouds to take his place at the right hand of his Father in heaven, where he stands day and night interceding on behalf of those who belong to him. And we see his consummation, that one day in the future, Jesus will return in the same way he came. When he returns, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord over all. He will establish his kingdom and restore all creation to what it was intended to be. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will rule in righteousness and glory forever and ever. Jesus is Lord means all of this and more. It's shorthand for all that God has done and all that God will do through the death, resurrection, and return of his Son. When we baptize someone at Redeemer, 
we ask them a series of questions before they're, they go under the water. They're to demonstrate their death with Jesus and their resurrection from the dead. And the final question we ask is, what is your confession? And you know it if you've been here. Their answer is, Jesus is Lord. And with their answer, here's what they're saying. I believe it all. I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that he can forgive sin and make my heart whole again. I believe he will return and establish his kingdom. I belong to him and commit to obeying him with all of my heart as long as I live. And all of that is summarized with three words. Jesus is Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is the message that God uses to open blind eyes. See, this phrase works in a similar way to the phrase God uttered when he made the world. That's the illusion in verse 6. When God spoke those words, let there be light, the sun, moon, and stars began to shine. And in the same way, God can speak words into the heart of those blinded by sin, and he can let the light of the glory of Jesus shine into souls for the very first time. And just as the sun shone into the darkness at creation, true knowledge of God pierces the darkness of our sinful hearts and lets the light of Jesus, God's Son, shine onto a newly created heart. Maybe the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor because it echoes his own experience. Like all of us, he was born blind and in need of the mercy of Jesus, but he thought he could see. In fact, he devoted his life to studying the Old Testament scriptures and to be as morally blameless as humanly possible. He graduated top in his class in religious studies. He was so zealous for religious achievement that it became his life's goal. And when he first encountered Christians, he said, wow, they've been deceived and they're dangerous. So they must be stopped. And he received permission to find them, to persecute and even kill them. And on one trip to locate and imprison Christians, a great light shone out of nowhere and blinded him. And with this light came a message from Jesus. And in that moment of blinding light, Paul saw the truth for the first time. Jesus is Lord. And from that point forward, he devoted his life to spreading the message that Jesus is Lord so that more blind people could see the truth that, see, that sets people free. You know, sometimes we sing here the great hymn written by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The first verse in that hymn affirms the truth that Satan is active and he's powerful. In fact, the final line of the first verse says, on earth is not his equal. That's lines talking about Satan. So don't amen it if you ever sing that. It's about Satan, not Jesus. On earth is not his equal. It's saying what's saying here, that you and I are not more powerful than Satan. So what can we do? Well, verse two says, we don't confide in our own strength or striving. Instead, we trust Jesus. In verse 3, we refuse to tremble or fear the rage of Satan. And why? And here's the great answer that comes at the end of verse 3. One little word shall fell him. See, that's the confidence we receive from this passage. As we minister to blind men and women, we don't trust our power, strength, or intellect. We trust the word of the gospel, and one little word from God fells Satan and brings sight to those who are blind. 
See, here we see how much greater, how much glorious Jesus is than Satan. All Satan can do is blind, but Jesus can give sight. It doesn't take a lot of power to blind someone. If you or I made it our goal to blind someone, we could accomplish it. But to make someone see, to give someone sight who's been blinded, that takes real power. Jesus is Lord. Here's the second part of our content. We are your servants. We don't proclaim ourselves as mighty or powerful, as successful. Verse 5, we proclaim ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, this was the part of the message that was missing from the grand speeches made by the super apostles. Those were the, the men who had infiltrated this church and were trying to turn people away from the gospel. They preached themselves as mighty and powerful and impressive. Like, come follow me, come serve me. But see, the cross teaches us to serve others because it shows us how Jesus served us and compels us to follow his example. Listen, it is possible for you to make minister, ministry to others actually about yourself. Maybe you feel a great sense of satisfaction in ministering to others. And that, that in itself is not bad. We're told it's more blessed to give than to receive. So when we give of ourselves, there is this type of spirit-given satisfaction. But sometimes we can start ministering as a, as a way to pursue a, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, some sort of personal fulfillment. And it's no longer about the person in need or the person serving. It's now about what we get from it. Or maybe it's the respect that others show you or the authority that comes with the position. Or maybe it's just the sense that you're, you're really committed and you're trying hard and you're doing good works. So let me ask you, when you serve others, why is it you serve? What, what motivates you? A few, a few weeks ago, my wife and I were watching a cooking show and they divided all these chefs up into a couple teams and they put one person in charge of each team. And then afterwards, they ask the leader, did you enjoy leading the team? And I just remember somebody answered so honestly. Did you enjoy leading the team? And they said, yes. I like telling people what to do. See, with effective ministry often comes position. And with position comes the ability to exert authority to tell people what to do. So is the sign of our leadership a whip and club to get people to do what we want? Is it a megaphone to shout people down? Or is it a cross where we lay down our lives for the good of others? Think for a moment about where God has given you leadership. I think everyone in this room has some measure of leadership. Leadership is simply influence. You influence someone. It might be at home. It might be at work, it might be in your neighborhood, at school, for your student, at your job, whatever it is. Where has God given you influence? Do you lead, do you steward that influence by serving or by demanding? The real test of our ministry is rarely in what we say, but in how we respond. Because it's one thing for you to call yourself a servant but it's another entirely when someone treats you as one. How do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? Our message 
is Jesus is Lord and we are your servants. You may have seen the recent TV commercials about Jesus. The campaign is called He Gets Us. So if you go to the website, you find this question. How did the story of a man who taught and practiced unconditional love become associated with hatred and oppression for so many people? And then each ad takes some details from the life of Jesus to show how he was marginalized and mistreated and how that allows him to understand us. The He Gets Us campaign reminds me actually of what the Apostle Paul is warning us about in this this passage, because it's a religious movement that talks about Jesus. It encourages good deeds, but it's not shaped and it's not defined by the cross. Because here's, listen to their understanding of Jesus. This comes from their website. Throughout our shared history, Jesus has represented the ultimate good that humankind is capable of aspiring to. Jesus represents the good that humankind is capable of aspiring to. Brothers and sisters, as worthy, as worthy as that sounds, that misses the mark. We don't aspire to be good like Jesus. The cross teaches us that even our good works are tainted by the sinful corruption that permeates every pore of our being. Jesus did not come to inspire us to be better. He came to die for us because our best can never be good enough. See, blind people don't learn to see by trying harder. They need a miracle. Jesus died for sinners so that he could give them life. This is the message of the cross, and this message must shape how we minister to others. We will share the truth that Jesus is Lord. We will share it openly and honestly. We will trust that it alone is the message that God uses to open blind eyes. And we will not quit even when it doesn't seem to be working for the cross teaches us that when all seems lost, God is still at work. So let's commit this week to proclaim Jesus is Lord and to pray for God to open eyes. Pray with me. Father, we come to you knowing that our best accomplishes nothing. That we don't have the power. I don't have the power to make someone see. Lord, and that, that, that can be discouraging because when we love someone and they're blind, we desperately want them to see. And so we're tempted to either give up or we're tempted to do something, change something, manipulate something so that they'll respond the way we want them to respond. But Lord, we know that that cannot work. And there's no amount of effort alone that can bring someone from darkness to light. That it requires a miraculous work of you speaking the truth into their life and opening their eyes. So Father, help us to be faithful in the part we've been called to play, which is to simply be messengers, proclaiming Jesus as Lord and serving others for their good. I want to encourage you just for a moment to keep your heads bowed and eyes closed and just take a moment to reflect. Here's what I want you to do before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I just want you to think about if there's a person that you have influence on that maybe you're, you're tempted to not keep serving, to not keep talking to, to keep, not keep ministering to. 
but they desperately need to hear this truth. I want you to just take a minute and pray for them. I want you to pray for boldness, to share the truth with them, to love, to serve them well. If you're tempted to quit, to not quit, and pray that God will open their eyes. So take just a moment and pray for them, pray for strength to minister to them, and then Tyler will lead us in the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.